Hello and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nualtra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialised and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. We invite you to drop into the Dietitian Cafe as we discuss the latest nutrition trends, topics and research. Every month, two episodes are released. One is an interview with a featured guest and the other a debate highlighting a hot topic in the world of nutrition and dietetics. However, before I start, can I ask you a huge favour? If you enjoy the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. In this episode, we are delighted to be joined by consultant bariatric surgeon and Sunday Times best-selling author, Dr. Andrew Jenkinson. Dr. Jenkinson works in the NHS at University College London Hospital, as well as privately. And in 2020, he released his first book, Why We Eat, in brackets, Too Much. And his second book, A Science-Backed Guide to Nutrition and Health, titled How to Eat and Still Lose Weight, comes out in January. In this big debate, we're we're asking the question, should bariatric surgery abroad be allowed? Many of you have likely read about this topic or perhaps even experienced it firsthand with patients coming into the NHS with complications following bariatric surgery abroad. But first, we'll recap the basics of bariatric surgery before getting into this topic. We'll be discussing everything from the reasons why people choose to go abroad, how surgery and the process abroad differs from the NHS, and the complications that can arise. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Jenkinson. It's great to have you with us and thank you for joining me. Corinne, thank you. No worries at all. Great to have you on. And before we get started, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Yes, I am Andrew Jenkinson. I'm a surgeon, uh, as you mentioned, at University College London Hospital. Um, Been a bariatric surgeon probably for around 20 years now. So I've got quite a lot of experience in the field. Um, one of the sort of inspirations for the book was actually just having a lot of patients who really, really struggle with their weight talk to me in clinics. So hundreds and hundreds of patients all saying very similar things, which went against, you know, the traditional way we think about, um, obesity and weight regulation, which tends to be very one dimensionally, you know, based on calories in calories out. So more complicated than that. So that sort of inspired me to write this book, uh, which became a bestseller. And I think, you know, gives a unique uh, take on how human weight is regulated and really sort of, you know, explains the problems that patients who try and lose weight by dieting and exercise experience. Brilliant. Sounds like a really interesting career you've had. And I'm excited to uh, kind of find out more throughout our conversation. So let's get started with a few quick fire questions, which is a bit of a tradition on this podcast in order to get to know you a little better. So the first question is, what would your ideal day off look like? Uh, so I'd have to sort of plan because I literally hardly ever get a day off, even weekends. But um, I think probably, you know, I'd try and cook something, maybe get some people together, family, friends, whatever, and plan something to cook, uh, maybe something new. Uh, I think it's like, yeah, I'd like cooking and uh, I think it's quite meditative and it's just a mm. nice sort of like sociable. Agreed. Yeah. And there's just nothing better than a lovely dinner party with friends and family oh. and uh, hopefully coming up to coming up to Christmas, you get, you're going to have some time off and you can have lots of food and family time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
<laughs> and what item of food could you not live without? Um, I've, I'm a sort of a really big fan of steak, actually. Um, and in the book, uh, Why We Eat Too Much, you know, it does explain that you know, natural saturated fats, like you get in uh, red meat, are actually you know quite good for you. They don't cause obesity and they don't cause cardiac disease, which is explained quite clearly in the book. There's a lot of mis mis misinformation. Mm. Now. So yeah, steak. Uh, I'm probably fish as well. Actually, absolutely love fish. So these sort of um, yeah you know, things that I would have difficulty being a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, both delicious, but sometimes the most simple of foods are actually the best. Just yeah. a good old steak and some seasoning and lovely fresh fish. Agreed. Yeah. So moving on to the episode questions. For the benefit of those who may be less familiar with this area of healthcare, let's start with a quick recap on bariatric surgery. Can you tell us the different kinds of bariatric surgery that are performed on the NHS? Yeah, so there's basically two main uh, common operations at the moment. Um, they're both keyhole surgery. So keyhole surgery means uh, laparoscopic small gut cuts in the upper abdomen, five small cuts. Um, and the two main procedures are the sleeve gastrectomy and the gastric bypass. There's two types of gastric bypass, the classical row and Y configuration or the mini gastric bypass, which is just a one join. Um, so yeah, there's the sleeve and the bypass of which there's two types of bypass. The old fashioned operation, the gastric band has really sort of gone out of favor. Uh, it doesn't work very well because of other complications. Okay. And how common are those surgeries that you described uh, in the UK? Uh, not as common as they should be. Um, I think probably less than 10,000 um, operations per year, both on the NHS and privately, are performed in the whole of the UK, you know, compared to you know, France, uh, where there's something like 40,000, 50,000. Uh, America, where there's pretty much the same amount of bariatric surgery as there is gallbladder surgery. So, yeah, we don't do nearly as much because there's a shortage of you know expertise Okay, I was going to ask why that may be. So it's the expertise side of things that prevents that from happening. Yeah. It's interesting. And with the rise of obesity levels, we all know that obesity levels are critical in, in the UK and globally. Do you think there's been a significant increase in the number of bariatric surgeries being performed? Uh, there was until probably uh, a year and a half ago, and now we have the advent of Zempic or Manjaro. So GLP-1 agonist uh, injections, which are you know, really effective in producing 10 or 15% weight loss in, in most people. So there's that cohort of patients who, you know, at the lower level of obesity, who may choose to have the injection treatment as a trial first to see if, you know, they have a good response or not. Uh, so I think, you know, certainly there was a, a significant increases in bariatric surgery frequency uh, until about a year ago. Um, but it's certainly decreased this year because of these injection treatments, which do work quite well. But they're, they're not as powerful as bariatric surgery, but they're, they're pretty good. That's good to know. And there's been lots of kind of media attention around the injection. So I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of that the that newer treatment as well. So it'd be interesting to see how that kind of evolves and affects <laughs> care in future. Are there any types of bariatric surgery patients that can't have su surgery on the NHS? And if so, why is this the case? 
so yeah, you have to select patients really carefully, which is why we have a team of you know dietitians, psychologists, you know, specialists, physicians, surgeons, and all patients are discussed at MDTs. Um, there are you know various criteria where you would be reticent about uh, operating. So um, if someone's you know too sick to withstand a complication or too old uh, or too big, you know you know the the risk of the operation probably then will exceed the benefits. So you'd say, okay, no. So if you've got someone who's 60 years old, 25 stone, you know, been diabetic for 20 years, got cardiac history, probably you'd say no. Uh, the other people who uh, probably would be reticent about operating on are those with psychological issues. Um, so with ongoing, you know, so basically psychosis type conditions. So schizophrenia, active schizophrenia, you know, manic depression, uh, or, or acute depression, you know, anyone who's had suicidal ideation. And then you've got people who, you know, it doesn't, there's just some red flags. So chronic pain syndrome, you know, social isolation. Some people don't do so well after the surgery. So you've got to be quite careful. We love operating, but you know, we don't we want to choose the right people so that the outcome is good. The outcome, if you do choose the right people, which happens almost, you know, a vast majority of the time is, you know, life-changing. Um, it's really, really good surgery for people who have, you know, spent decades trying to get out of obesity by dieting and exercise and just, you know, get dragged back in by, you know, the the, the, the metabolic aspects of, you know, the body being able to, to, to withstand diets. Mm. And obesity in itself is such a complicated picture. I think for anyone that's not in the medical or the nutritional world, it seems simple that, you know, you just eat less or you exercise more, but actually, you know, as, as clinicians and healthcare professionals, we know that's just not the case. And it's such a complicated mixed uh, bag of, um, of of patients and, and their circumstances. And it's interesting that you mentioned there around the psychological you know, influences and how that affects not just deciding to get someone to actually have surgery, but actually the, the long-term sustainable impact of that on someone's life. So it's good to know that the psychologist, I suppose, is, is involved from the beginning um, rather than just after. The whole sort of misconception um, of obesity and how people put weight on and lose weight is uh, massively simplified by this calories in. So the amount of calories mm. you eating and how calories you expend by by you know, exercise um the problem is that most of the calories that we expend are based on metabolism so this is the metabolism before you even get out of bed so heating your body you know, immune system heartbeat blood pressure uh, uh digestion this sort of thing that accounts for 70 percent of your your baseline just the, the amount of energy you use um and if you go on a diet um, you tend to you know, shrink your metabolism. So you, automatically your body will, your metabolism will follow the diet and you will adapt to, for instance, if you're on 1,000 to 1,200 calories, you lose a little bit of weight for like the first two, three, four weeks, and then your body will adapt. The body, you know, it's it senses, you know, the lack of calories coming in and says, okay, um, we're not going to, we're not going to shed any more weight. Uh, and this is why diets fail because at that time when, you know, metabolically you've adapted also your hypothalamus is receiving massively um powerful appetite uh, signals which sort of drive your behavior so it's very difficult to walk past a you know, 
Costa Coffee or Starbucks, you know, uh, and avoid those mm. calorie-laden cakes, uh, which are going to get your weight back up to where your brain wants it to be. So all of this is explained in the first, the first book. Yeah, no, thank you for, for summarising that just, uh, you know, in that way. I think, as you say, it's very hard to to put this picture into just a few words. So obviously your book will be a you know, fantastic resource for anyone wanting to know a bit more about obesity and and the drivers behind, you know, uh, where, where people get to and how they get to that place. So in the UK, bariatric surgery is part of a weight management pathway. Can you explain this pathway in a bit more detail and maybe give some information around the different tiers? Um, so tier four is the bariatric surgery pathway. Uh, obviously, people should have you know undergone tier three beforehand. Uh, tier three is you know a supervised diet and exercise um, or diet and lifestyle. Um, routine um, supervised by a professional um, and if they fail those at, at tier three then they are then become eligible for tier four if they you know fulfill body mass index criteria uh, so for instance to be eligible for bariatric surgery you have to have a BMI of over 40 or failing that you know comorbidities such as sleep apnea or high blood pressure with a BMI over 35, or actually if you're type 2 diabetic, you can qualify for bariatric surgery with a BMI just over 30. So these are the criteria um, going through tier three and then having you know, that threshold of, of body mass index. Uh, I sort of don't really know what tier two or tier one is, so sorry. Mm-hmm. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, I, I suppose that those are the tier three and the tier four, the critical ones. So um yeah, they're, they're the ones that are most important. Uh, but obviously, as you say, you need to make sure that people go through the tiers to make sure that they're, you know, uh, suitable for, for the bariatric surgery. Some people choose to go abroad to have bariatric surgery. So I'd love to hear from you, your perspective on what are the reasons that some people choose this route instead of getting it done here in the UK? Uh, I think it's, you know, waiting time on the NHS, uh, which can be a year or two. You've got to go through a lot of different hoops. You've got to go and see a lot of different medical professionals. Um, And then, you know, economics. So, for instance, we have a lot of patients who go to Turkey. Uh, I think that the price of a gastric sleeve or bypass in Turkey is, you know, three and a half thousand pounds. which compared to the to UK, if you want to pay for for this type of surgery, it's going to cost ten or eleven thousand pounds minimal, minimum. Um, so you know, obesity is such an overriding problem for you know a quarter of the population that you know, and people have tried everything. They tend to have tried many, 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 many diets, and they know um, that this type of surgery actually does work. So they are drawn to you know trying to get that money together and going over to Turkey. Um, so I totally understand it from the patient's perspective. Um, I sort of don't understand how they can do the operation so cheaply. The, the consumables, the staples, you know, cost at least £2,000, you know. So it might be that they're using cheaper consumables to have such a low price. Um, that obviously thousands of people do go over uh, and have bariatric surgery abroad, but we do see an increasing number at UCLH coming in with complications. So we get you know, a sleeve leak, which is the worst complication you can get from bariatric surgery. Once every two weeks comes into UCLH, these people are in hospital for 
weeks or months, you know, trying to be sorted out. And do people go abroad if they're not eligible for surgery in the UK? Do you see that a lot? Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the, the threshold for being accepted for surgery is a lot looser. Um, basically, if you want it, you can get it if you pay for it. Um, so, yeah. And you mentioned Turkey. Are there any other popular places that people tend to go? I mean, Turkey is the most sort of recent, highly popular, popularized uh, place. But before that, it was sort of Eastern Europe, uh, Prague. Um, yeah, but Turkey now, I think, you know, they've got a great social media campaign. These hospitals, uh, they sort of look, look great. And yeah. And they get patient testimonials. So they're doing a good job with publicizing themselves. I was just about to ask you about the role of social media. And I suppose there's two aspects there. There's the promotional side for which I suppose them as businesses are are able to, you know, effectively communicate with potential patients and, and promote their services. But do you think as well that increasing trends on social media towards how we look and being aesthetically perfect and having this kind of body that everyone aspires to have. Do you think that, you know, that's affecting and influenced people heading abroad to have bariatric surgery? Yeah. I mean, that's quite an existential question. We're looking at culture and Western culture in particular, and, you know, the erosion of uh, people's, you know, almost self-esteem because they don't look like a, a, a supermodel and that's what they are faced with all the time on social media or whatever. Um, and this sort of cult of beauty, uh, which is causes a lot of unhappiness. So yeah, I agree mm. that can, uh, can send people uh, to be, you know, to have this surgery. I mean, probably you're getting people who are overweight going to Turkey and uh, wanting surgery or over, only just overweight, you know, BMI 26 or whatever, because they want to be skinny. Um, so that's an interesting point. Yeah. So it, people kind of in between, the of, you know, the risk of the risk and benefit because the benefit isn't as good because they haven't got much weight to lose. Yeah. The risk is the same, you know, you've got about a 3% chance of uh, getting a problem after these operations. So yeah, that, it, this if the surgeon has integrity wherever he is he should be saying to the patient but this isn't for you you know yeah and the risk is and would you agree with this that they are surpassing the important diet and lifestyle education and behavior change and so potentially they're kind of going to get this bariatric surgery at that weight maybe BMI 26 27 and not truly understanding healthy eating principles potentially ending up where they were at the beginning well, the problem is, Corinne, that you know the healthy eating principles are, are quite jumbled and you know not mm. great. You know, asking people to to uh, consume a load of whole grains, which no no one ever does, then goes to you know refined carbohydrates rather than saturated fat is the thing that you know drove the obesity epidemic in the first place. So, you know, nutritionalists, um, doctors, and medics, you know, designing these guidelines are actually, in my opinion massively responsible for people not being able to lose weight um, and for there being an obesity epidemic, you know. And, you know, you can have the eat well plate or whatever, but actually people just ignore that, you know, and eat 56% of their calories come from ultra-processed foods. Um, 
But it's the environment that people find themselves in, the food environment. Now, most people get their food from the supermarket. You know, it's highly marketed. They also process foods. It causes, you know, reward pathways to trigger, you know, habitual behavior to to to, to start uh, and leads to populations increasing their weight. It's not, you know, particularly to do with the calories, it's to do with the quality of the food, but, you know, mm-hmm. metabolically. Yeah, I know. So there's been lots of discussion around ultra-processed foods and their role in, in our diets. And I think we could have a, you know, we, have, we actually have had a whole other podcast on this topic alone. Um, and it's it's quite a, a meaty one, shall we say. Um, but I, I do take your point. And I think sometimes, yeah, the eat well plate can be definitely a bit too simplistic and not uh, one size fits all. Can I your question, Corinne? What, what's of course. Your- what do you think of leptin resistance? Do you think that's a, a driver of obesity? So the leptin resistance, so well, hormone that comes from our fat cells and should, you know, tell the hypothalamus, our brain, how much. Mm. Fat. So you know, if we become obese, then that level is high. The brain sees it, and you get an automatic decrease in your appetite and increase in your metabolism. But the problem is that. You know, if your insulin levels are too high, that actually blocks the leptin signal. So the, this is why obesity is a a disease caused by, you know, misfiring of of uh, what would normally be pathways that maintain yeah. health. You know, so you get a misfiring, you get a blockage of these signals, and then you know, because of the food environment people find themselves in, they just become obese. Mm. Definitely. I think um, certain people definitely have biological predispositions to obesity. And I, my personal opinion is that obesity is so vastly complicated. There's a multitude of reasons as to why one individual may be obese versus another. Um, and I suppose it's difficult for me to truly state clarity on that because I know that there is just so many inf- you know, influencing factors. So um, I suppose when working with obese individuals in, in clinical practice, I'd always try and take a, a a unique approach, a very individualized approach to everyone. And but sometimes with- everyone, everyone who suffers with obesity has got leptin resistance. So they will have high leptin levels, but the brain can't read that leptin because it's been blocked by insulin. So this is why the you know, lowish carb diets or cutting carbs, you know, it's not the it's not the fact that they're consuming less calories, it's actually that then suddenly the leptin is being seen by the brain uh, and then you get a normal homeostasis occurring. So this is why uh, low-carb diets work quite well or cutting okay. up of processed foods. Mm, okay, interesting. So just going back to bariatric surgery in the UK versus abroad, you mentioned that obviously due to the cost, there are some concerns around what materials they're using because usually as if you're you know working to a high standard they are very expensive yeah. what are the other main differences between bariatric surgery in the uk versus abroad that you're aware of uh apart from the cost mm. instruments um yeah i mean the follow-up obviously is uh is you're not going to get uh, the surgeon won't be around because you'll be sort of leaving the country within a few days probably um so you know some complications can occur three or four weeks afterwards. And you know, if they're not dealt with you know, promptly by the surgeon or a surgeon, uh, they can become, you know, from, from small problems, they can become real big problems if, if mm-hmm. you can't access, you know, appropriate, appropriate 
sort of intervention. So that would be the other thing, you know, follow-up and the availability of, of uh, a surgeon. Okay. And do other countries have any eligibility criteria for surgery? And if so, does this differ to the UK? So for the example, for example, is the UK particularly strict versus other countries? No, there's a bit of it. There's a pretty much a world, well, Western world sort of unification of the criteria. So it's the same in America, France, Europe uh, as the UK. <clears throat> okay. And you spoke there about follow-up. So are there common complications that occur when patients return from having bariatric surgery abroad? And do these differ to the complications that are normally seen in the UK? Uh, yeah, as I sort of mentioned before, we get a lot of, well, every couple of weeks at UCLH, we get a patient who's had a sleeve gastrectomy operation in Turkey these days, uh, and they get a, a sleeve leak or, you know, dysphagia because the sleeve is too tight or, or, or you know, really bad reflux or something like that. So they are the main complications we're seeing. Um, I've seen, you know, a terrible internal hernia in a, a pregnant woman uh, who actually had her surgery originally in Israel, um, and we had to resect basically a, a whole small bowel. Uh, so she's going to be on TPN and then on the list for small bowel transplant for the rest of her life. Um, so, yeah, you can get catastrophic complications, but, you know, you can get them anyway you know, if, you, if you have your, your surgery in the UK. But they're pretty rare, you know, um, and mm. balance of risk and benefit. Benefits are so massive and the, the risks are, are really quite low that, you know, uh, it is pretty good surgery for, for people suffering with obesity. Mm. And do you think partly that's because in the UK you're able to follow them up a lot more closely and, and spot issues sooner rather than later? Or is it to do with the surgery itself that causes more complications? Or what do you think is the cause of more complications abroad um i think one uh, aspect would be you know the the access to follow up if if you get a problem so for instance on the nhs there'll always be a nurse to call uh, a point of contact there's you know 24 7 uh bariatric surgeon on call um so there's always you know that you know backup um as far as sort of the operations itself you know the skill of the surgeon I, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen these guys operate, but uh, I presume they'd be well trained. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you mentioned there about dysphagia, so difficulty swallowing. Is that something that lasts a long time, lifelong dysphagia, or is it post-surgery? What kind of other dietary complications can occur, and are they long-term? Yeah, so when you do a sleep restriction, so sleep restriction, you take a stomach, which can be the size of a melon, you remove three quarters of it, Actually, the part that you remove profoundly affects appetite via ghrelin. So ghrelin levels go down, so you don't feel hungry. But you end up with a, with a, a stomach the size and shape of a, a banana that's been peeled, so sort of around two centimetres wide and 10 centimetres long. Um, obviously, after any operation, you get inflammation, and inflammation makes things tighter uh, and edematous. So at first, after a sleeve operation, you're just on liquids, for one or two weeks. Uh, and then you progress on to puree consistency food and then mashed consistency food. But quite a lot of uh, patients, they want to go a bit faster. They'll go straight on to mashed potato after two weeks. 
And then when they swallow it, you know, the first couple of mouthfuls will get lodged in the top of the stomach. Uh, and then you'll get sort of the secondary esophageal peristalsis. It's almost like a esophageal spasm, which causes like a terrible retrosternal pain. They sometimes say it's heartburn, but it's not. It's um, dysphagia because they've, the, the, the viscosity of the food that they ate was too thick. As it were, so with the sleeve, the, so the stomach becomes a tube. Basically, now we know that you know the esophagus has peristaltic, you know, so a coordinated contraction as you swallow. Uh, but when the food then gets into the stomach, there is no peristaltic contraction. There's no, the stomach's not designed to be a tube. So you look at the transit through the stomach um, is dependent on gravity and the consistency of the food. So how viscous it is. So. People with a sleeve will always have problems eating, particularly sticky food. So the things that they say particularly are uh, rice, pasta, bread, and dry meat like chicken or lamb. Uh, these things, you know, can get first couple of mouthfuls can get lodged at the top of the sleeve and uh, yeah, cause some discomfort and dysphagia. But as time goes by, I mean, obviously the stomach is tight at first, but as time goes by, you know, six months of the year, they find it much easier to eat lots of things. But you know, most people who suffer with obesity actually eat far too fast, and so they have to really adapt. You know, mm. in the term, you can never eat uh, food too fast after these operations. Yeah, so being mindful of your chewing and time taken to eat a meal is all part of it as well, not just what you eat. Um, yeah, those are the golden rules of uh, golden rules that we we ask them to you know uh, put their knife and fork down between mouthfuls, uh, not eat when distracted. Um, so not watching TV or eating, walking down the street, uh, yeah, taking time, um, you know, between mouthfuls, chewing well. Uh, so all of these things they're encouraged to do. Yeah, definitely. I know I'm a, I'm a guilty of eating my dinner in front of the telly sometimes. So yeah. I'm a bit of a bad dietitian for that. <laughs> but yes, it's very important. So in terms of the follow-up process, so we've, we've touched on it briefly, but I'd really love to hear from you what the follow-up process is um, and then I suppose going on the theme that we're talking about, so the abroad surgery, how does that, how do the follow-up process differ? So are you able to kind of provide a bit of a step-by-step follow-up uh, process or a bit of an overview? Yeah. So, well, I mean, you've got to look at the pre-op prep first. So um, all patients will be seen by a dietitian beforehand. They will go through the pre-operative, usually the liver shrinkage diet, two weeks, Um and then the postdoctoral reintroduction of food, and then the longer term, you know, uh, requirements to keep the weight off long term. So that's beforehand. Then they'll reiterate that usually six weeks post-op. Um, obviously, the psychologist sees them beforehand as well, and then not always sees them afterwards. So you, psychology is usually triaged beforehand, but from the dietetic point of view, they will normally see them four to six weeks post-op, and just try and then, you know. Um, encourage the patient to eat home prepared you know healthy natural food so the main thing that i say to patients is if you stick to you know, meat meat and fish and vegetables and dairy products and avoid you know refined carbohydrates sugar where possible don't give anything up but you know avoid these things regularly then you'll be able to maintain a healthy weight long term so dietetic follow-up is for six weeks and then it can be no longer if required but from the surgical point of view um i tend to follow my patients up for five years annually first the first year we see them three months six months and then 12 months down the line uh 
And you know, the follow-up is amazing after one or two years because you don't recognize the patient. They've lost 40 kilograms. They've got real sort of self-esteem back and confidence and they're like their old selves. And they all say like, oh God, I wish I'd had this surgery 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the follow-up clinics are really, really nice, really nice because people are so, you know, grateful. That sounds really rewarding and lovely to be able to see that change. And especially, you know, staying with your patient that long as well, you, I'm sure you build a rapport and a relationship with with some of these patients. So to see them happy and benefit from something that you've had a part in must be a really rewarding feeling. Yeah, no, definitely. I've got quite a few uh, good friends who are my patients. That's lovely. It's really nice to know. And we, we spoke then about the fact that in abroad, the follow-up isn't as... Uh, detailed or uh, frequent as it is in the UK. Is that the case then abroad? You're kind of, once you're discharged, is there a follow-up or what happens? Um, I think it would be up to the individual clinic. I mean, I've heard uh, of, uh, for instance, maybe a Turkish surgeon having a clinic in central London to follow up, uh, but I don't think that's very common. I don't know whether they do Zoom follow-ups uh, but I do know that, you know, the patients that come to UCLH with complications tend not to really have much much of a follow-up and uh, are reliant on the NHS to pick up the pieces, as it were. So, now the follow-up is uh, much less intense, if at all, you know. Um, okay. In a news article published earlier this year, it highlighted that since 2019, seven Britons have died after having weight loss surgery abroad, whilst others have returned with serious health complications. And I know we've spoken about this throughout this episode. As a surgeon, is there a clear reason as to why these tragedies occurred? I think it's probably late diagnosis of things like sleep leaks, which cause intra-abdominal, you know, uh, sepsis. Um if you don't treat it and operate uh, within the first few hours of, of, of the leak occurring, uh, then, you know, the patient gets sicker and sicker and sicker. Uh, I presume, you know, the, the you know, unfortunate patients that did die were probably, you know, relatively high risk and their cardiorespiratory systems were not able to take, you know, the, the, the stress that that intra-abdominal sepsis caused them. Um, and they were going to organ failure, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I think the lack of timely intervention. And a lot of patients, because they had the surgery aboard, will maybe sit at home for two or three days in, you know, taking painkillers in a bit of agony, you know, uh, whilst their intra-abdominal abscess and sepsis is getting worse and worse and worse. So, yeah, I think that these are the, the reasons. Um, I think it's highly unusual for a UK uh patient to, to die i think usually there's around about we have we, we obviously have a reporting system i would think you know like one patient out of ten thousand will, will will die in the uk because obviously patients are selected if they're too high risk they don't get the surgery but yeah um it seems quite high that seven patients have died you know, since 2019. Mm. is the actual surgery that they're receiving the same as in the uk so is it kind of a standardized procedure across all surgeons or do surgeons kind of have their own style uh so when we talk about sleep gastrectomy i mean everyone does it slightly differently but there's yeah a degree of standardization um 
But I mean, I've come across patients who thought they've had one operation and had a complication. And when you go back in or you investigate what operation they had, it's actually a totally different operation they actually had. Uh, so, yeah, it can be a little bit more you know, confusing. But uh, generally, you know, a surgeon doing a sleep gastrectomy, uh, if they've been trained properly, um, will do it in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So given that all we've discussed, do you think bariatric surgery abroad should be allowed? The, the million dollar question, if we, if we like. Uh, I don't think you can ban, I don't think you can stop people from traveling and ban them from seeking healthcare abroad. Um, the reason they're going is because the NHS isn't very efficient and to go private here is, is too expensive. But I think, you know, patients should be aware if they do go abroad, you know, where where are the instrument why are the instruments so cheap you know um probably they would have to do you know lots and lots of cases per day so the surgeon may be rushed you know so i think the quality of the care abroad is you know not as good as the uk uh, so they should be aware of that so you're probably getting what you pay for yeah and do you think there should be particular restrictions on certain patients from going abroad for bariatric surgery or is it kind of much as you said it's very difficult to control the situation um i don't think you can have restrictions you can't have a law in parliament to say you're not allowed to go to turkey and have a surgery that's not going to happen so we could do guy we can yeah so that there should be patients should follow the guidelines and they should know whether they're eligible or not. But um, I don't think you can bring in a law to stop people seeking uh, healthcare wherever they want to, if they're paying out of their own pocket. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the way forward for this situation in terms of, we know there are complications when people do go abroad, but obviously there is a need and a demand. What would your advice be or your, your insights um, I mean, the whole problem with, you know, the treatment of obesity in the UK and in bariatric surgery and whatever is there is this mis- misunderstanding that obesity is not a disease and it's a lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, the the blame of the, of the condition is placed, you know, squarely on the shoulders of the patient, just like someone who, you know, smokes a lot and has got chest problems, you know, they're blamed for their predicament. But it's not that. Obesity is a a disease caused by food environment that people uh, find themselves in. Uh, and the lack of understanding about that you know, just means that, you know, obese patients are, are blamed and the, you know, the, the priority for treatment is low. So, you know, if we could get across to even a lot of, most doctors don't understand weight regulation. Uh, and, you know, most important people, obviously, are the politicians who uh, control the purse strings of the NHS. Um, then bariatric intervention and, you know, pharmacotherapy in the form of GLP-1 would be you know, funded much better. Uh, it'd be more efficient here and people wouldn't find the need to be able to have to go abroad for it. So, you know, I think that sort of higher prioritization of treatment of obesity in the UK would be, you know, the start of a solution to, you know, people are going abroad for a reason. Mm, okay. Thank you for sharing your view. Do you think that as a doctor and your degree, 
there's potentially a gap for other medics and the future generation to learn more about obesity and the role of diet and lifestyle in causing someone to be obese. Do you think that's not covered enough on the curriculum for medics? I mean, in my book, you know, I introduced this. So we, at medical school, we have various different systems we learn about. So we learn about, you know, uh, the liver, so hepatology, the lungs, pulmonology, the heart, cardiology, you know, kidneys, urology. And in my book, we introduced this new uh, system called metabology, which is the study of energy flow into and out of the body. Uh, and, you know, it's a sort of mischievous look at what should be taught in, in medical school. So you know, metabology is the name of you know, how medics should be taught you know, leptin resistance, which we talked about earlier, how the fact that someone who's in an environment with you know, high sugar and high refined carbohydrate gets a higher uh, uh, insulin level and that then blocks leptin and causes obesity. You know, medics don't understand that. They're not taught that. Um, so, yeah, I agree uh, that there is a massive lack of education regarding obesity in you know, all medical schools even now. And the, you know, the tragedy is a quarter of the patients that they're going to treat, they're going to suffer with obesity in the mm. future. So I have a lack of understanding of that uh, and a lack of, you know, um, empathy, I think, with the patient. Yeah. So perhaps this is a bit of a call for, uh, you know, future course planners on, on medical degrees to potentially consider that. Um, and I know within the dietetic and nutrition community, the conversation around should medics have more time spent on on diet and nutrition and exercise that that topic has come up quite a lot so hopefully it causes not only the obesity epidemic it's the quality of food in the environment uh yeah but also western inflammatory diseases you know this these are all caused by diet they're not caused by you know pollution or anything like that they're caused by you know poor diets with you know pro-inflammatory foods and then the avoidance of fresh foods which have phytochemicals that are anti-inflammatory um so yeah i agree medics you know should be should be taught yeah yeah (laughs) many of our audience are dietitians some of whom may be seeing patients who have returned from surgery abroad with complications what advice would you give to them in terms of how to support those patients that have had surgery abroad? Um, I think you need to make sure that they haven't developed a deficiency. So obviously they, they should have been told that they need, you know, multivitamin and mineral supplements um, long-term, so lifelong, basically. We tend to uh, recommend uh, if they're getting their vitamins from from the pharmacy, then just two normal multivitamins, National Gold or, or, or Centrum. In the morning, and then probably an AdCal D3 or two AdCal D3s in the evening, and then you know vitamin D deficiency is so prevalent that you know I'm quite a big fan of Cody Cancer for all twenty thousand units once a week, uh, which will really get your vitamin D levels up and improve a lot. Uh, some people might need extra ferrous sulfate, particularly women of uh, uh, childbearing age, menstruating women. Um, so you need to make sure they're taking the vitamins then you probably need to access, you know, uh, services where they can have all of their blood tests done to make sure they don't have a vitamin deficiency at the time. Uh, And you'll be checking things like vitamin B12, folate, calcium, um, iron, uh, as well as the sort of regular liver function, renal function, full blood count, that sort of thing. So 
that's the sort of main thing. And then, you know, uh, this whole thing that we explained before, a lot of people get dysphagia after, after bariatric surgery. It's because they haven't been told that they need to, you know, look at the viscosity of the food that they're eating and that particularly viscous food, either avoid it or eat it really, really slowly. Um, and then, you know, if they have got, you know, proper complication from bariatric surgery, then they need to be seen by, you know, uh, a, bar a bariatric surgeon and investigated with endoscopy or barium or whatever. Okay, that's really clear. Thank you. So to wrap up today's episode, is there one key takeaway that you'd like to leave our listeners? Um, I think, you know, the key takeaway is, you know, for, for people really suffering with obesity who can't lose weight by diets and have tried dieting for a long, long time, bariatric surgery is something that should be considered um, because it is life-changing surgery, which is pretty low risk. Um, I would be reticent about considering uh, going abroad and I'd probably try and, you know, bide my time on the NHS because, you know, if you do go abroad, as we said before, you get what you pay for. Um, I think, you know, it's much more risky. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Jenkinson. That was a really interesting episode. Thanks, Corinne. It was great to discuss and debate this area particularly, and a huge thank you to Nuoutra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague who you think might find it interesting. Our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out very soon, but in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to RD2B Dietitian Cafe podcast, where once a month, our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the Dietitian Cafe. See you next time.